0: to be poets, to think about is that idea of the gap. In other words, the gap between the idea that you have to convey and your ability to to, to make that idea into something that is physically there, that is the poem, Um, is to, to think about that gap as something that you can always bridge if you practice. In other words, doing exercises, experimenting with form, Experimenting with um, with dialogue, with art, and with artists, and writing regularly, and not feeling as if whatever you do is the only thing you can do, but expanding your palette, expanding your poetic range. Um, I think that's part of your responsibility as a poet. Your responsibility as a poet is to increase your vocabulary, increase your your your, your use of poetic devices, and so on, so that when you come to the page, you can use those that range to, to create really powerful and exciting work that fills people who are listening to you and who read your work with a sense that they are seeing things that they may have known but have never seen it so beautifully and so evocatively expressed. Our responsibility is to have language to be able to do that. And that's, that I encourage aspiring writers to be honest with themselves, to know their limitations and then to work hard to, 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 um, to remove those limitations by practice.
1: Quaim Dawes, they're speaking in 2012 at everybody's reading in Leicester. You're listening to right here right now. Welcome, I'm Ellie, and I'm Eleanor. It is an absolute pleasure to have you here with us tonight. We've got a great show uh, full of poetry submissions, short fiction works, amongst some of uh, our favourites that we've chosen. Before we dive in, there's something we need to let you know.
2: Yes, there is. Sin acknowledges and pays respect to the owners of the land on which the House of Sin and Studios stand, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. Sin also acknowledges and pays respect to the elders and traditional owners of the lands our content reaches, as well as the radio stations we broadcast from across the country. And, of course,
1: tonight we are reading creative works, so some of the ideas explored might not be for sensitive or little ears, so it is uh, perhaps good to switch off or switch over to another station, if that is the case. But... You are listening to Right Here Right Now. Thank you for joining us. We're going to uh, dive straight into the show with a poem by Quaim Dawes, uh, the poet you heard earlier giving advice to aspiring poets. This is one of his better-known pieces. You might have heard of it before. It's called Tornado Child. I am a tornado child. I come like a swirl of black and darken up your day, I whip it all into my womb, lift you and your things, carry you to where you've never been and maybe, if I feel good, I might bring you back, all warm and sacred, heart humming wild like a bird after an early sudden flight, I am a tornado child. I tremble at the elements, when thunder rolls my womb trembles, remembering the tweak of contractions that tightened to a wail when my mother pushed me out into the black of a tornado night. I am a tornado child, you can tell us from far by the crazy of our hair, couldn't tame it if we tried. Even now I tie a bandana to silence the din of anarchy in these core, thick plaits. I am a tornado child. Born in the whirl of clouds, the centre crumbled, then I came. My lovers know the blast of my chaotic giving. They tremble at the whip of my supple thighs. You cross me at your peril, I swallow Light. When the warm of anger lashes me into a spin, the pine trees bend to me, swept in my gyrations. I am a tornado child. When the spirit takes my head, I hurtle into the vacuum of white sheets billowing and paint a swirl of colour, streaked with many songs. Quaim Dawes, their uh, Ghanaian poet actor editor critic critic and musician uh of he he now resides uh in america um and is based in south carolina
2: um i really love that piece yeah it's a really nice one mm-hmm. and i also think it was great to hear it after hearing that advice that he gave at the start of the show about the gap
1: mm. Mm. and you can really uh see
2: how he he kind of you know He writes what he speaks there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Um, What a great piece. Thanks for that, Ellie. Now, next up, we have a highlight from earlier in this season of Right Here, Right Now Radio, and it is a spoken word piece by Madison Griffiths. We played this in week three of our show, but for those who didn't tune in that week, Madison Griffiths is a writer, artist and poet whose work has been published in Vice, SBS, Overland, Daily Life, Me Engine, Kill Your Darlings, Pedestrian, Catalogue Magazine, Catapult and Going Down Swinging, amongst others. What an impressive list there. She is now an online editor for VoiceWorks. Her work revolves predominantly around issues concerning women, mental illness and race. And, of course, we love the team at VoiceWorks. We interviewed Mira Schlossberg, their head editor, just last week. Week. So listen in, this is a spoken word piece by Madison Griffiths called Heights. We kissed by a
3: river where a plastic fork on the greasy shore was our only witness, and later in the honey light of your bedroom, you asked me about my fears. Heights, I told you, like any new lover would. Heights, my darling, the escalators at Parliament Station, a needle bleached and ready to embellish my naked arm, the sort of fog that swallows up roads and sheep, distant, like tiny white boulders with tiny white legs, unseeingly stumbling into some farmer's backyard butchery, or worse, smog, cloudy human acid, proof that we are failing. Open water, where sea skeletons bear their stony teeth hungry for toes, and the current the way it curls and cries and guzzles, summoning plastic and flesh into its ocean garden. We collapse into cotton sheets, and what I do not tell you is that in five years it will be you, my darling. I will see a pink body lathered in morning sweat, yawning, and for a moment I will, I will mistake him for you. And he will mistake me for a contour of a woman, trembling in second-hand trousers." In the purple cosmos of my sleep, you spit, kick, curse, strike at it on me. Every day is a burial, my darling, deep seas. Lamb that weep and march, your thumbs lodged into my shoulders like meaty threats. Heights, my darling, how much I have grown.
2: That was Heights, a spoken word piece there by Madison Griffiths that we played earlier in our season a submission there from madison what a great one thanks again for that
1: yes and if you do want to listen to our interview with her i believe it was week three we spoke with madison um you absolutely can do that on the podcast um if you do wish to submit you can do that too. Uh, You can always send us an email. Our inbox is always open. We're there at Right Here Radio. That's W-R-I-T-E, here radio at gmail.com. We're also on social media. Uh, Say hello on Facebook or Instagram. The handle there is Right Here Radio.
2: Now, next up, we have an interview to play for you with Zadie Smith, from the Louisiana Channel. Now, Zadie Smith is a contemporary British novelist, essayist and short story writer. You might know some of her work. White Teeth, her debut novel, was an immediate bestseller. She's also the author of On Beauty and most recently, Swing Time, which came out in 2016. And the interview we're playing for you today is quite interesting because it doesn't Start off about writing. It's sort of, um, she, she just goes through a bunch of different uh, subject areas, but just goes to highlight how articulate and brilliant she really is. So, settle in. We've got a bit of a long interview, but we're going to play it in two parts for you. So, here is Zadie Smith talking to the Louisiana channel.
4: Well, I, shame gets a bad rap these days. <laughs> I think it's quite a useful emotion corrective on certain kinds of behavior but that kind of shame is um, is sad because it's about being caught in a mindset and feeling isolated within it I think and um, uh, I think in England in that kind of stratified class system there's a lot of shame at, at all levels. The middle classes are full of shame, kind of self-hating shame, the working class is lower middle class particularly because they're kind of stuck between two a rock and a hard place. Um, yeah, the shame of not being understood or not being able to make yourself understood is a kind of corrosive type of shame, I think. There's the sh- shame of being, um, how do you say, vulnerable, loser. Like people don't speak about it very often in its collectivity, but for instance, if I was, when I was a kid speaking to my Jewish friends and coming from my position, you would often think, you have a secret thought of why, why did my people submit to this treatment? You know, you, That's the question you're not meant to ask in history class. Why did six million die? Why, why were there six million slaves? Um, but I think in a small child, there is a kind of um, reflexive shame, because you can't understand it. And I think when I was a child, particularly when I looked at the um, situation of Jamaica, and Jamaican migrants, you feel some shame, in the sense of, you know, what is wrong with my family? That's what you would say, in a simple sense. But but historical knowledge, understanding what had occurred in Jamaica, the history of Jamaica, um, removes that shame because it gives you uh, information, context, uh, historical depth. You know, the, the way I was educated, I didn't know anything about Jamaica. I didn't even really understand that Jamaicans were not native to Jamaica, for example. British education in the 70s and 80s was quite concerned with the inequalities of American culture but kind of pulled a veil over what had happened in Britain. So I found that even writing this book and doing all the research incredibly freeing. It kind of... Um, you replace shame with this kind of empowering knowledge. Pride. I don't find pride very useful emotion though I understand for a lot of people it is important and um, I I just come from a different perspective I, I assume people are um, including myself just deeply <laughs> deeply flawed and so shame is usually quite appropriate on a day-to-day level um, but I don't know that might just be my issue the question is uh, how can you f- function practically. I don't think there's any point in self-flagellation and feeling sorry for yourself and thinking how terrible you are. But shame is a kind of productive thing to create change. Um, I guess I do believe in that, yeah.
5: So uh, what I'm hearing is that you're saying that there's a a very positive element to the word shame. I've never ever considered this. Could you elaborate on that? To be
4: shameless is to be very, very dangerous, I think. In America, our president at the moment is a shameless person um I, I don't know maybe- maybe it's um i know it's definitely a Christian emotion though and that's why it's so um uh, so out of fashion, but I always thought it quite quite uh productive in the gospels the idea that you assume that you are entirely in sin I always assume that because it's almost always true there's so many um so many kind of small vanities and i don't know we're always boasting or trying to put something over on somebody or that that seems to be our daily practice so i think to to have in your mind the idea that you're probably not as great as you think you are is a useful thought i find it useful anyway Writing is all shame. I, I was out with a load of writers yesterday and everybody feels ashamed when they write. It's a shameful practice. Like, who are you, who are you to write 400 pages about anything? Why should anybody have to read them? It's every every <laughs> moment of it is shameful. Also, the exposure, if, it is, um, if you write intimately, which all writing, even if it's a distant historical novel, is from your brain, it's your ideas. So it's, it's like being exposed in front of people and it's often quite shy people who write, so there's a strange conflict there. You see it in comedians too, stand-up comedians, my brother's one, where they, they're not extrovert people. You know, If you've met them in a pub, they're kind of quiet and, and cautious and scared of life, but then they go on stage and say all these outrageous things. I, I think it's a strange um, psychological quirk um, in which shame is used to kind of propel you on to something, to say things that you don't really want to say in public. Um, but yes, for me, m- writing is mostly shame. And I guess the thing I have against pride is um, that it's all usually so inaccurate. Like, I can say, like in my sentimental moments, I'm so proud of my people, meaning the kind of Black diaspora. Look at all the amazing things we do. Look at Stevie Wonder and Usain Bolt and Neil deGrasse Tyson and all these extraordinary Michelle Obama and blah blah blah. But the bottom line is, I am not any of those people, and I have no. responsibility for them you know it's it's a sentimental idea and I, and I'm moved by it but it's also not true i can't take um these people are individuals who who achieve by themselves you have a collective sense of pride but it's usually um it can run so quickly into something that is dangerous and unhealthy nationalism or all kinds of collective thought so I, i'd rather talk in those in those situations of love, to say I love these people, I love what they've done, I appreciate and love it, but pride in it, I don't. I don't see why that's useful. It's, I sometimes older writers will tell you, you know. You're in your study and you take down an earlier book and just on a whim you start reading it, and then the you can have a feeling like, oh, it's not bad, but it always feels quite distant. Partly because when you're writing, it, it's such an obsessive thing, and then when you're done it's very um it's like pushing something out of your body you don't want to be involved with it anymore um but I have that sometimes like I'll pick up a novel and read a chapter or something but i would very I can't imagine reading any of them from beginning to end the only thing I read with some pride occasionally is an essay because it's short and it's less (laughs) painful (laughs) Less painful to do yeah but but I I think you can't deny the satisfaction of I think Martin Amos said it of having written. That I think is very strong. It's not a very active emotion. But um it's nice to know that you have written some things. That's nice.
2: That was the first half of an interview with Zadie Smith by the Louisiana Channel that we are going to play for you tonight. And what an interesting author she is. Yes, I was just I was
1: just saying to Eleanor uh while we were listening to that that it is such a kind of British thing mm-hmm. to to kind of lean, lean into shame, but it makes
2: so much sense when she says it, you know. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Cuz we all agree it's not good to be shameless, is it? Mm. Now, next up we have a submission from a listener. This is a piece by Jenny Hickenbotham, who is an an RMIT mature age student who has been a writer for many decades, mostly based on lived experience of mental health challenges. This piece is called Death Becomes Us All. Death Becomes Us All. I'm going to be dead before my major writing gets published. Lucky I threw away the journal from when I was psychotic and off the beam. I remember, Philip, in my head, moaning and groaning because I threw that journal in a public garbage bin in Adelaide. Anyone could have found them. They were all about him and Kay and Mark, all about my intimate psychological relations and bizarre experience and thoughts in relation to them. Someone could have caused a stink, blackmailed them, but they didn't. Nothing eventuated. One piece of writing accepted for publication ten years ago Another now. Both essays, I was going to say. Different styles, but I realised they were both essays. One called Grant Writing, and one called Fifty Years to Tell. Wish I had capitalised those words, but too late now. Maybe I am better at essay writing than fiction, or narrative fiction, or poetry. However, I am convinced the judges always reject me on the basis of my topic, which is mental health. No one, no judge... No sponsor, no major, no grant giver, no one wants to read about mental health. And yet, their time is coming. 45% of Australians will experience a mental health challenge in their lifetime. Well, good luck. I could have helped, but you had no time for me, and now I have no time for you. Suffer. It's not true. I will have helped to change the stigma and attitudes of people in the streets in relation to responding and relating to others with mental health challenges, despite your lack of support. I hope you get to your deathbed and write a will, giving all your money to mental health, topics such as discussion and acceptance. After all, we all live on the spectrum of mental health. It's just a line in the sand. You are sad and feeling isolated and struggling today. I am hearing the voice of my mother Again, and she is bugging me and I have to push her away. But at the same time, she is phoning me and I want to be polite and support her. Mental health challenges challenge us all. My voices relate to my unconscious. Two psychiatrists have told me that the voice I hear, once I learned to listen to it, was the voice of my mother. All of us have unconscious voices. They offer thoughts, they offer experiences, they offer commentary... They are only unconscious if we refuse to listen to them. The unconscious becomes conscious if you listen to it. The personal unconscious is only unconscious because you deny it. You refuse to listen to it. You block it out. Most of what happens in your unconscious mind can be converted to words, just as everything that happens in your conscious mind is experienced in words, images. Therefore, download the unconscious voice. Listen, learn, accept, acknowledge. Some authors and religious commentators would have us believe that we must wait till death to experience the voice of the unconscious. They may have confused you by telling you it was the voice of God. Why wait till death to listen to the unconscious experiences? They are your own experiences after all, voices talking to you. It's too late when you're dying. Nothing you can do, just regret. Are you reading, hearing this, or am I rejected again? That was Death Becomes Us All. And that was a submission to us by Jenny Hickenbotham, a mature age student here at RMIT. Thank you very much for that, Jenny. And if you want to submit a piece to us, you can reach out to us at, right here, radio at gmail.com That's right here with a W. <laughs> I,
1: uh, I loved that piece. Thank you so much, Jenny. Um, I think it's something a lot of writers go through. Unfortunately, um, rejection is a is a big part of any creative industry. But um, and that piece sort of shone a spotlight on it and how it can make you feel mm-hmm. uh, really well. Thank you so much. That was beautiful. What do you have next for us, Ellie? Well, I have a another submission, uh, a another spoken word piece that uh, you might have heard before on our very first show. Uh, Ravina Grover is a Sydney-based freelance writer and what you're about to hear is a piece of hers called First Sanctuary. It was first performed at the Bankstown Poetry Slam in Sydney and we have it again here for you now.
6: My first sanctuary outside of home. Dear Nani, mother of my mother, Don't let me leave this country. Daughters of an immigrant generation, a female generation, looted, uprooted with 22 years of our own partition. How is it that the moon can see you sleep every night but your reflection in it escapes me? Leaving half of me and all of you in Delhi, dear Nani, you are two syllables living through five decades of hell, two children and five thousand round, round rotis. Your hands carry bloodlines, they are gold mines that nourish from mangoes to chai to in-laws who dared not know your worth. But you never faltered and never made me feel what they made you yourself believe.' The stories you tell of rajas and parties and queens and castles while pushing my back on the swing every evening through that Delhi fog in that Delhi park when those Delhi mosquitoes arrived precisely at the stroke of five to dance and hear you speak. You are the twenty minutes before bedtime when my mouth is full of sugar-laced yoghurt, big, ah, last bite, good girl, hand on my head, head against the camphor smell of your clothes. Ludhiana sang a sweet lullaby the night before I arrived, and with honey you wrote holy words on my tongue. oom Never a moment you raised your voice, your hand or your head, but every painful word that left my mouth you used to love me more. Dear Nani, I yearn to learn from your tenderness, to catch a glimpse of your girlhood in Punjab, Ambala, Ghaziabad. Tell me your life before I blink you away. Sing me to sleep with the softness of your fingers pressed on my eyes once again, dear Nani Mirijan. Please, please, don't let me leave.
1: An absolutely beautiful piece there by Ravina Grover. Uh, A spoken word piece first performed at the Bankstown Poetry Slam earlier this year. You can find her on Twitter at Ravina Grover
2: and we actually had the pleasure of chatting to Ravina in that same episode of our show and that's up on our podcast that you can find on Omni what do you have
1: next for us Ellie (laughs) yes please check us out on Omni I um before we move on to the second part of the Zadie Smith interview we played for you earlier, uh, part two coming up. I have for you a poem by William Kane. He's a regular submitter to our show. Um, thank you, William. This poem is titled "Leon," and um, it is another one we have read out on the show before, one of our favourites. So we're going to read it again for you now. "Leon" by William Kane. Here on right here, right now faint orange light falls on reveals the strain on the wrinkled old man as he lays himself bare for us the heaving sticky masses under the whirring of noble fans who spin wildly and off kilter although in vain as we sweat heavily the band blows rattles and rolls whipping up a rhythmic frenzy of strangers In a moment. The air is heavy with breath. Anticipation. Sound. As the old man. Continues his maddening performance. Dark wrinkled skin disappears inside. A crisp oversized shirt that. Envelops his slender narrow frame. Humble measured. He is adored by us who always cheer for more, more, more. Obligingly, he blows his shiny friend, filling the high-ceilinged, weathered room with the sound of his soul. The paint on the walls is peeling, cracking. The room itself is shuddering and inhaling, Exhaling, mirroring the lungs of the man whilst he struggles to keep up to the frantic pace set by the percussionist, our feet, hips, shoulders drunkenly follow, trying to keep in time with the devil himself, on a balmy, crazy, cathartic night in Nicaragua. That there was a piece by William Kane, a regular submitter to our show, titled Leon. Inspired, I'm told, by a night in Leon in Nicaragua well, that sounded fun <laughs> it did sound fun <laughs> I think um, it's really fascinating sometimes how uh, poetry can take you to places and it's we've, you know I, I think a lot of us would have been at at a gig where that room is inhaling and exhaling, yeah. Um, You know that
2: feeling as soon as you hear that line, don't you? You do. (laughs) Thanks again, William, one of our favourite submitters here at Right Here, Right Now Radio, if we are allowed to have favourites. Now, back to the second part of our interview, not our interview, excuse me, but the Zadie Smith interview we're playing for you tonight with the Louisiana Channel. Um, Last, we left Zadie talking about shame and the positivities of that emotion let's see what she has to share with us next
1: it does I will mention before we play this one this second half it will go for about 10 minutes so pop the kettle up grab a cup of tea because uh, it goes for a little while i will play it for you now
5: when you started out writing you might have been a singer or a dancer perhaps not a right mm. mean, but this is a quite wonderful to, to have to choose from?
4: I think, we were talking about it last night, um, there's some other writers around the table who have these other talents. There's a theory, that I think it's Foster Wallace had, that every writer is someone who could do something else very well, but not quite well enough. <laughs> and that I found to be true. Got a lot of ex-sportsmen, actors, dancers, singers, people who had some skill in a different area, but but not quite enough to do what they wanted to do. I think writing gives the most possibility of improvement. I was never going to be Stevie Wonder, no matter how hard I tried, but with writing, you can get better.
5: And you might even get to meet Stevie Wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: You can get better in, um, and I think f- for a lot of writers, the problem is performance. Um, think of Wallace playing tennis for even that. It's, they like the act, but they don't want to do it in front of people. Writing is wonderfully solitary when I'm reading I read those crazy right-wing websites kind of interested in the psychology of those people and I think you have to imagine that for eight years they were covered in shame. It might seem impossible to imagine but they hated the country they were in, they were ashamed of their president, they felt like strangers in their land, they were completely alienated. That's the only way I can really comprehend it because I think that there are many people who felt that way and I think not being able to see that will not help the left. You have to try and conceive of it, Um, as unpleasant is. It doesn't mean you have to agree with it or submit to it, but you have to be able to see that for what it is. Um, That all the sometimes occasionally unthinking pleasure I took in Obama, pleasures of, I don't mean politically, but pleasures of personal identification, which I think were very strong for a lot of liberals. He likes my music, he reads my kind of books, he's my kind of person, he talks like me. All of that, which seems such a pleasure, quite aside from what actually went on politically in that administration, was equally infuriating (laughs) to many people who found him to be alien entirely to their sensibility, to their taste, to their ideas, to the way they talked. I think you have to conceive of that and how much rage builds up over eight years and, and then feeling the full force of it now. I think you have to think of emotions as real even when they're extremely alien to you. I think that's the first step in um, having some form of communication. Is
5: that actually a writer's thing? I mean you, you slip into the skin of, of others?
4: Yeah it's partly that but I, I also think um, you know I, I meet people with fairly extreme views when I'm on the road or when you're in a taxi. or It, it is possible to talk to people but you need to talk to them and you need to listen to them as well, first. The feeling of not being even listened to is is very difficult, I think, to stand. I'm amazed how much of it comes down to language. I think that's the one thing that really strikes me about the right-wing sites is that when you get down to the core complaints, the things that really upset them are linguistic. Like Black Lives Matter has driven them literally up the wall. They they find that those three words so provocative that it it's deranging people i find that fascinating um part, you know the my gut instinct is rageful i feel like are you saying to me that after 250 years of this twisted racial history i can't even say these three words without you feeling hurt and mortified and rage like i feel the rage but my rage matching their rage is pointless i think it's more interesting to think about what it is about white people um, that find the idea of any um, collectivity that excludes them so upsetting. I've always thought that's very interesting. Even when I was in school on a bus and I'd see a group of white people getting angry because four Bengalis were talking Bengali. What is, I, I was always fascinated, what is, the ang- what is making you so angry? And I think part of it is uh, like if you've ever been in a marriage or any relationship it's insecurity jealousy (laughs) and a kind of vanity that you should always be included in all things so I, I think trying to understand the motivations behind it is interesting why is it so why do you turn that moment of mystery where you're not sure what's going on immediately into rage why does it have to be transformed into rage could it be transformed into something else like curiosity concern interest acknowledgement that maybe this particular thing isn't to do with you, it's OK sometimes for things not to be to do with you. Of course, minorities are so used to things not being to do with them that they don't t- tend to get rageful at that, you know. Now there's this pushback, the idea of representation about being seen here on TV shows and magazines. When I was a kid, the idea that I wasn't present in anything was just the way it was, you know.
5: But do you think actually when you are a writer and and keep evolving that you are in a sense erasing what you did to go on to something else but you bring something
4: along from what you already did. That's how I feel. I, I'm always trying to destroy what came before. You know, just um, in order that you, you have somewhere to go. But I, I think writing is, is more conservative when I think of people like Laurie Anderson for example, real um, artists, It's the only word for them. There is a kind of truly destructive urge in artists like that. They're just constantly making and tearing down. Writing is a little more linear. It's more like building on something. Um, but I'm always hoping for a kind of revolution in the sentence, something new to happen. Yeah.
5: Also perhaps because writing is a bit old fashioned.
4: It is very old fashioned. I, But I really don't mind that. When I write I'm really thinking primarily of my generation and i guess the people older than me and that i'm writing for them and taking this little thing to the grave and when i think about younger people i'm always delighted if they read me but always quite surprised as well i don't i don't expect it and i also don't expect the novel in this form to go on infinitely i th- i think there are many more interesting and immediate mediums that 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 generation are going to use you know the novel's going t- to be hard to... I'm saying t- <laughs> this to the publisher, it's tough. Ju- I just think there are other ways of doing it. I, I, in- you can do an incredible mixture of visual, oral text. I, I just can't imagine people continuing to write these tomes. I'd be surprised. <laughs> but we'll see. But as long as I can write mine till I go, I'll be, I'll be happy enough with that.
5: <laughs> but do you feel that the young people have now from Twitter and, and texting and emojis and right. uh, d- a different language?
4: No, I I mean I'm reading a book by someone who's 22 when she wrote it, it's absolutely fantastic. The form is different, um, there are little clues, like even if I didn't know her age and I didn't, I would know she was of this generation. Like My husband pointed out, we've been reading a lot of books by young pe- people, young women, How many times in these books the character, usually in the first person, will say something emotional will happen, and instead of responding either in the narrative or vocally as you would in a traditional novel, the character will pinch a bit of their skin until it bleeds, or do this, or hold their jaw. It's so strange, as if the body was a dissociated thing, you know. He said that to me, and I put my fingernails into my hand until it bled, or I keep on finding these lines over and over again. That's very fascinating to me, you know they don't have they don't the idea of verbalizing an emotion is quite distant and the body is treated like this strange thing you have to drag around after you've finished your text messages and emails and your virtual life why why have i got this flesh bucket that i'm carrying around i'm very struck by that perspective and I keep on finding it i think that's very different from the way we wrote though so that's really interesting to me it's it's not a particularly sad thing and, and The arc of these novels quite often seems to be the character starts out very arch and and completely embedded in ideology, argument, internet argument, and by the end of the book realises simple things like I have a body, I might actually want a baby, love is complicated, you can't just love anyone in any direction. They learn these very things which would have been for us first principles, they learn at the end, but I, I don't think that means they're slower. It's just that they're saying, here are these things we've been given. They don't seem to have any relevance to our lives. Oh, wait, actually, I, I do have this flesh packet and it has these various irrational desires and needs. So I find, I find that all really interesting. I, I, I'm very engaged by it, by the way they're writing. So disassociated from themselves. It's cool.
2: That was Zadie Smith on Shame, Rage and Writing, an interview with the Louisiana Channel. And we just loved that, didn't we, Ellie? She is exquisite. It is unbelievable. Um, totally she, believable. It is. Share with the others what you said to me while we were listening to that. Well, I was
1: just saying, you know, if we if we do, you know, have to choose somebody to send off to Mars to start us all over again, we, we have, it's her, you yeah. know, there's no one better. There's she no just one better. She's so capable and fabulous and uh, so much empathy for different points of view Yeah, um, but still so uh, strong and centred on her own views and it's just, she's an incredible woman and writer.
2: Yeah, and I think so awesome that she can talk about something like the alt-right and those sort of websites with almost as though it's happening, happened already in the past, even though it's still very current, you know, but she almost has that fourth, you know, it always sounds like she's had a lot of time, like years to think about it, but really it's happening now.
1: Mm. Zadie Smith there on Shame, Rage and Writing. We do have a piece, one of, her, one of her works
2: now to read for you. We sure do. And this is an essay in the, that was published in the New Yorker, and it is called You Are in Paradise. If you are brown and decide to date a British man, sooner or later he will present you with a Paul Gauguin. This may come in postcard form or as a valentine, as a framed print for your birthday, or repeated many times across wrapping paper, but it will come and it will always be a painting from Gauguin's Tahitian period, 1891 to 1903. Chances are nudity will be involved, also some large spherical fruit. This has happened to me three times with three different men, but on only one occasion did the colour of my skin appear to push us into the South Seas themselves. I say my skin, but, as with any passion, this was a generalised one. M liked anything that lurked around the equator. Herman Melville, the early explorers, pirates, breadfruit the idea of breadfruit, and native girls of all varieties. We booked a holiday to Tonga. In normal circumstances, I would never be receptive to such an idea. I holiday in only one way, in my own house, on my balcony, or at a stretch in a hotel in Europe. On this occasion, though, I was halfway through writing a novel. If a man with a canary had beckoned me to follow him down a mine, I would have gone. For the twenty six hours of our flight, M sat next to me, very merry in his specially purchased straw hat, and I was merry, too, working away at the free wine. But I think that, while M knew all the time we were going to Tonga, I still somehow expected to land in lov- lovely, temperate Antwerp. I remember stepping onto Nuku Alofa's rolling tar runway in the face melting heat and thinking, I have come to a country with no white tube thingy where you must walk along the roiling tar runway in the face-melting heat. How did this happen? Next thing I knew, we were on a boat so small that only the boatman, M, and I, and one other couple could fit in it. It seemed appropriate to ask them if they came here often. Us? Often? The man cried. They were English, and a throbbing comic book read all over. "'Well, it's paradise, isn't it?' the woman said reverently "'as we all looked out toward the island we were heading for in our small boat. "'It's beyond your imagination,' the man said. "'We never would have dreamt it. "'It's the holiday of a lifetime, but we won the lottery, didn't we?' "'I thought he meant this figuratively, as in life's lottery, "'as in lucky us going on our upscale holiday "'with similarly lucky people like you. "'But no, they'd won the actual lottery.' This is the first thing we bought, the woman said. But how can it get better than this? Much has been written about the horror of upscale holidays, of the strange metaphysical loneliness instilled by constantly being informed by fellow tourists that you are in paradise, of how the pleasures offered to the tourists mix poisonously with said tourists' personal guilt-slash-shame regarding his or her relative wealth when compared with the Indigenous people serving him or her tall, cool glass after tall, cool glass of fuzzy navel. Take all that as read. Also take as red the German-owned island, the existential misery of our Tongan waiters, the enforced native entertainments on a Sunday evening, and the Americans next door who had brought their own TV. What makes the whole thing stand out in my memory is my neurological reaction. I am an allergic person by nature. Cats dogs, horses, mosquitoes, and all facial products. But I have never before found myself allergic to a whole country. Allergic to its insects, its sand, its coral, its food. And the clincher? Its water. We had booked for two weeks, but five days into the holiday of a lifetime, my windpipe began to close. I felt bad for M. He had his dream, and I was ruining it. He had his fail, traditional bungalow made of coconut fibre, and his hammock and his circle of the beach. In the middle of the ring, there was a brown girl, but Gauguin wouldn't have painted her. Her right arm was twice its normal size, her left eye would not open, her legs were bleeding, and she wouldn't stop whining. She refused to be excited by the fact that many Tongans can hold their breath underwater for an abnormally long time that the men dress as women until they come of age, that the millennium would arrive here before it arrived anywhere else. By the sixth day, M had given up on me. He made friends with a uniquely cheery Tongan waiter named Tony, who, interestingly, still wore woman's clothing. They would sit together on our deck, looking out at the ocean, sometimes playing Scrabble, while I sat indoors, wrapped in a cocoon fashioned from mosquito netting. If you squinted, Leading Tony's fearsome biceps, you could imagine that M had met his Gugan princess at last. That was You Are in Paradise by Zadie okay. Smith, who we just heard from before in an interview with the L- Louisiana Channel. Um, that's a pretty fun piece, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is. It is. I really like that piece.
2: Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Holidays Gone Wrong. Mm. (laughs) a great inspiration for many
1: (laughs) (laughs) now we have about 10 minutes left with you all um thank you for joining us tonight we're going to finish on uh, a submission and a couple of our favorite poems so this here is a submission by harrison bishop it's titled 38 cans of beer and a kiss in the sun I can see the sun shining through open shutters and weather-beaten fly screens, a cool breeze blowing. the southern ocean and us, deep blue with white caps, a grey gull, floating steadfast in the wind. There are goose pimples on your thighs and a stick of sandalwood burning memories of strange gods and colourful monks of sweating brows and train rides stopped on the muddy tracks by footfalls of elephants. There is a vinyl well played scratching around methodically hymns of love and melancholy and everything else. There exists an old map hanging on the wall, full of old socialist republics and empires lost to time. We both point to the humid jungles and whisper about running away, hand in hand through the palm trees to a hidden river flowing. And yet, the weather turns "'Sundials spinning, whistling throughout the day. "'It is winter, and I can see the full moon "'and feel the rhythm of rain behind the Venetian blinds. "'Pitter-patter, pitter-patter. "'There is a heater burning in the corner, "'grunting and groaning against the tentacles of north sea winds, "'the bedside lamp flickering in the night "'as your chest rises and falls. "'A full candelabra burning a frenzy in me.' The deep red wax dripping from your favourite candle onto the tables of weathered wood. There exists one book between us, an old Russian paperback about grief and hardship. I watch you read a page before ripping it out and handing it to me. Every night until the book becomes whole again from your side to mine. Life once a maze of fog and empty beer cans becoming clear. Life and all for the very first time. I can see us dancing in the park next to an old Chinese woman, and I know that when everything ends, mountains will move and we will have to cherish the stream. That there was a submission by poet harrison bishop titled 38 cans of beer and a kiss in the sun you might have heard that piece you might remember it from an earlier episode um, if you liked what you heard you can follow harrison and his work he's on instagram at Harrisobish yeah, I love that piece from Harrison. That's such a nice one. We've had a few uh, submissions from Harrison. Oh, and actually, we did interview him as well. Um, yeah, we did. You can <laughs> listen to that on the uh, on the podcast there on Omni. If you do wish to submit, you can also do that at right Here radio at gmail.com or send us a direct message on Facebook or Instagram, where they're at uh, right Here Radio. That's W R I T E Here Radio.
2: Now next up is a short little favourite from Lesbia Harford and this is a poem written in the late 19th century and it's called Day's End and Lesbia was an Australian poet. Little girls, you are gay. Little factory girls, the end of the day. There you stand, huddled close on the back of a tram, having taken your dose. And you go through the grey and the gold of the streets at the close of the day. Blind as moles, you are crude. You are sweet, little girls, and amazingly rude. But so fine to be gay. Gentle people are dull at the end of the day." That is Day's End by Lesbia Harford, an Australian poet. Um, And that was written in the end of the 19th century. I really like that piece because it sort of still feels a bit relevant today when you you know see young school kids on trains. there's something so sweet but so naughty about them <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah it's a it's a timeless piece mm. um now we only have uh, a few more minutes with you, so we are going to uh finish up with uh two just two more poems um. This next one is titled Nobility by Alice Carey. She was a poet uh, in the 1800s, sister of Phoebe Carey, uh, another poet you might have heard of. This piece was written and published in 1849, so we're going to take you all the way back. (laughs) Nobility by Alice Carey. True worth is in being, not seeming. In doing, each day that goes by. Some little good, not in dreaming. Of great things to do, by and by. For whatever men say in their blindness, and spite the fancies of youth. There's nothing so kingly as kindness, and nothing so royal as truth. We get back our meter as we measure. We cannot do wrong and feel right. Nor can we give pain and gain pleasure, For justice avenges each slight. The air for the wing of the sparrow, The bush for the robin and wren, But always the path that is narrow and straight For the children of men. Tis not in the pages of story The heart of its ills to beguile, Though he who makes courtship to glory gives all that he hath for her smile. For when from her heights he has won her, alas, it is only to prove that nothing's so sacred as honour, and nothing so loyal as love. We cannot make bargains for blisses, not, nor catch them like fishes in nets, and sometimes the thing our life misses helps more than the thing which it gets. For good lieth not in pursuing, nor gaining of great nor small, but just in the doing and doing, as we would be done, by is all. Through envy, through malice, through hating, against the world early and late, no jot of our courage abating, our part is to work and to wait. And slight is the sting of his trouble, Whose winnings are less than his worth. For he who is honest is noble, whatever his fortunes of birth. That there is Nobility by Alice Carey. I really just love how positive that piece is. It's just really nice. (laughs) And, you know, um, modern poetry, sometimes, you know, we have the rhyming, but I I guess... Sometimes I forget that that's what it kind of largely was and that rhyming was so kind of, um, I, I don't know, I still think it's impressive.
2: Yeah, I and it, there is something so satisfying about it to the ear when you hear it read aloud. Yeah. Um, that's really nice. No, I think that you're so right, it's such a positive piece.
1: And I guess, actually, now that you mention it being read aloud, I wonder in the 1800s there would have been some people who who. who couldn't read it only it would poetry would be largely oratory yeah that's so true actually
2: mm. we're on to something there
1: <laughs> <laughs> nobility by Alice Carey guys it has been an absolute
2: pleasure thank you for joining us tonight yeah thanks for having us now we're going to finish with a slam poetry piece by Phil Kay and this is recorded at Button Poetry out of the States uh, we've actually heard a piece of Phil's before but this is a piece called Camaro. And we'll leave you with that for the evening. And thank you so much for joining Ellie and I on this Monday evening.
1: We'll catch you next week.
2: Bye, guys.
7: You and I are standing at the Hertz rent-a-car counter. And you are trying to convince me to rent a convertible. You say an extra hundred bucks won't be something we remember years from now. You are wrong, I remember. (laughs) But you're also right in the way you often are. That afternoon we drive down the coast of California in a white convertible Camaro. Three hours south of San Francisco is Big Sur, a place where the cliffs cleave into the Pacific Ocean. And we drive along the edge of the blade. I look over at you, hair whipping back in a wind you bargained for. I want to say something, but I do not know what. In elementary school, I had a crush on a girl for three years, first to third grade. And she left one day in the middle of the school year, left on a normal Tuesday and did not come back. I never said a word to her. Back in the convertible, you tell me you like how carefully I choose my words, how I am comfortable in silence. I say, I love you which is not something I say often. That afternoon, we come across wet cement. First, we giggle, fingers out, ready to write our names, two aliens trying to phone home. (laughs) Then we stop, talk about how it would be insensitive, how this is not our block, keep walking. Do not talk about writing our names next to each other, what it means to let that harden. Months later, we are in New York City, a place where it is never quiet, but in our corner it is silent for a long time. You say, adventure is important to me now. And you leave on a normal Tuesday and do not come back. I go back to the places we went, like some tourist trespassing in a Hollywood neighborhood, hoping to spot a star on their front lawn for just a second. I go to many places, speak to many people, speak through a microphone so I cannot hear anybody else. Months later, we see each other. You tell me, you look okay. You tell me, you did so many things right. You tell me, I do not know what to say. And for a moment, we are together again, two aliens trying to find home. And then you leave, and I ask questions to an empty room. Do you remember the cliffs? The woman with the side ponytail at the Hertz rental car counter? The hundred bucks? How you thought we wouldn't remember any of this years from now, but I do. I remember.
1: Like us at facebook.com slash synmedia.
4: Follow us on Twitter at synmedia.
1: And come visit us at syn.org.au.